Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Lenny Duncan. Lenny is a writer, speaker, and scholar working at the forefront of racial justice in America. Lenny is also the author of the recent book, Dear Revolutionaries, a field guide for a world beyond the church. You can get connected with Lenny and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, we've got the legendary, the femme fatale, Lenny Duncan. I am so excited. Uh, Lenny, you are always a treat to hang out with. Uh, you are somebody, at some point, I need to meet you in person. I think, actually, we ran into each other a little bit at Wild Goose at a couple Wild years Goose. ago. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, but we didn't really actually get to hang out. There's going to be a day where I'm going to be able to hang out with you, and it's going to be a hell of a time having great conversation. Great. I'm all down for it. I'm super excited for it. Before we dive into your new book, which I'm really excited to chat about, Lenny, you're an activist. You are a PhD student. You're an author. You do a million other things in the world. But who is Lenny Duncan to Lenny Duncan? Oh, I am just another example of a black artist um, who is under, who has um, proximity to and is under the, the effects of the white gaze. And so the white gaze is what most of us think of as, as public accolades, people liking you. Uh, Baldwin said, uh, explained it as you can either be famous or you can write. And no matter how the two look, right, they have nothing to do with each other, no matter what it looks like, right? And so I would say, you know, I'm an artist who struggled for a long time trying to differentiate themselves from the thought leader uh, industrial complex, the movement from that. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, that's all I can describe myself as, as an artist and a poet and a witness. You know, um, I think we're in a time where uh, we need people to catalog what's happening, to, to tell mm. stories about what's happening. Uh, you know, it's the beginning of Black History Month, and I was just listening to Haile Selassie's uh, address to the UN. And one of the things he talks about is blessed is the generation that learns from the previous ones. And so as a historian and a writer and now for Press Pass, who kind of just talks about what's happening, um, I'm a storyteller and, you know, and I'm a writer and sometimes that gets me close to the divine and mm. sometimes people want to hear about that. That's who I am to me. Um, there is a lot of other titles. Uh, there's probably some shit on the back of the book. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure Lisa Kloskun, shout out to you over at Broadleaf Books, the homie, um, had put together a tight ass bio for the back of that. I'm not, you know, but I- I'm not sure if that's me. All right. So let's talk about Dear Revolutionaries. Brand new book, and 
it's basically a follow-up to Dear Church. I mean, you reference Dear Church a lot in it. Yeah. Dear Revolutionaries, I'll just say, far more radical of a book and just way better. I loved it. I think it's incredible. It's a great short read. It's it's actually like just 100 pages, basically. Super yeah. short, but very digestible. I loved it. You know, this isn't your first book that you've written. What did you learn about yourself as you wrote Dear Revolutionaries? Even though it's very short, what did you learn about yourself in this writing process that maybe you didn't learn about yourself in like the writing process of Dear Church or um, some of the other things that you've written? Yeah, Dear Revolutionaries, it's really a funny story. But now that I've officially turned in my credentials to the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, I really don't give a fuck about telling some of these stories anymore. Let's hear it. But to be honest with you, Pacific Lutheran Seminary... Uh, out here on the West Coast, hired me to teach uh, students what I was doing on the streets of Portland. Um, And I had been on the ground as a street chaplain since May 30th of 2020. Um, And I only actually officially left that position because I believe you can only leave those kind of community positions. You you, you can only have that kind of community position if the community names you. Mm -hmm. And you can only leave it when they say you can go, right? So like everyone's always like, well, if the community names you, it's awesome. Right. Well, I'm like, yeah, well, the community named Jesus and look what they did to his ass. I mean, like, 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 you know what I'm saying? Like, the being like, yes, that's what you want, but it's not like that's not like a great result. Right. But they let me go um, just September of last year, Mason. Um, So I, you know, I served while uh, the sitting president of the United States was getting suggestions on Fox and Friends and then trying them out on the afternoon on mothers and veterans. Mm. I uh, was handed my first gas mask when we were being gassed by a Jewish rabbi. And I can't get the the image out of my head of this you know, Jewish rabbi, Ben, handing me his gas mask and being willingly gassed to protect the black body. Mm. I spent most of the first year of the uprisings. And my gig was if you were a faith leader and you were afraid to go out there because it was scary in Portland. I would take you all the way up to the front lines and I would get you out before it got too hairy. I didn't guarantee your safety, but um, rumor uh, word got around that I was really good at this. And so I was able to take uh, influence and, uh, and I mean, real community influencers, not some asshole on social media. Sorry, Mason. But like, you know what I mean? Like, like real community influencers, like some people who were Twitter people, right? Because they had to see, right? Because they were. Um, and some people who had influence on social media, there were a few of those, but like community influencers, people who own businesses, people who could maybe get some of the gang guys to like stop using it as an opportunity, people who could like help us organize community defense, uh, people who had uh, medic training, people, you know, a lot of those folks were already out there and mm-hmm. a lot of that stuff was already happening organically and no one needed my help. And in fact, uh, I just want to read, because every one of these interviews, I'm trying to read the, the dedication um, of the book. And I'll try and get through it without crying. I did it earlier today. We'll see if I can do it again. And the book is dedicated to, uh, these words are for those I failed. Kevin Peterson, Genoa Don, uh, Donald, and June T-Rex Knightley, and all those who fell on my watch. The church forgets, but I will never forget. You are the closest I've ever come to encountering Christ. And I'm not worthy to untie the thong of your sandals. We know this because I am alive. I got to witness a generation that people have so much shit to say about 
perhaps be the closest I've ever seen to the living and walking and breathing divine mm-hmm. on earth. I watched mothers sacrifice their bodies. I watched veterans go from signing people up to vote to joining the middle of a radical movement and becoming a community leader and bringing their family. I watched I watched as a white supremacist took down eight of, well, I didn't watch, but as a white supremacist took down eight of my friends in a planned assault and murdered one, I watched as, you know, people rushed to that Nazi's aid after Mm -hmm. he did that, right? And I watched uh, people... As churches talked about the houselessness crisis, I watched these kids move hundreds and hundreds of of houselessness encampments while still doing the work at City Hall. Like that's the thing, everyone's like, why don't people just go to City Hall and do it the right way? People were in those meetings every week, pleading, saying, please stop the sweeps. Please stop displacing 5,000 people every other week because it's a lot of work for us to keep moving them, getting them resettled because you have nowhere for them to go, right? I watch these things. I watch the things that the church, our seminaries, our our institutions, our denominations all claim to do. Yet I watched a bunch of people who wouldn't even mention Jesus Christ in the same sentence as any mm. of that do the stuff that the church is constantly begging people to do. And I realized that all my work I had done before that traveling around the country, trying to assuade the church to join this. Uh, you know, a lot of people are going to claim they, they, they predicted Christo-fascism. A lot of people will say, well, Lenny's been talking about that shit for a really, really, really long time. The closest I came was in Dear Church. I, I said, I feared that we were entering a theological civil war that might end the Republic. Mm-hmm. I stand by that. Mm-hmm. And and because this stuff is fueled by theology and and, and a worldview which is just a philosophical view and uh, which leads to, you know, political consequences. But I watched as everything I thought I knew about the world and everything I thought I knew about God and everything I thought about, I knew about the future and revolution melt in front of my eyes. And I realized that everything I had ever done meant nothing. Um, And so that's how it started for me. And Dear Revolutionaries, I wrote because I was supposed to be teaching all my learnings to Pacific Lutheran Seminary but Ray Pickett, the president, uh, and the dean kept hitting me up for the content. Where's the content? Where's the content? Where's the content? And I was reticent to turn over the content because I wanted to know the format of the class first. But they had already decided that it was going to be pre-recorded, And so I was just like, you guys just want me to churn out material for you? I could do that myself. And then black people actually get the money. I say, and then people could just do it for free. Mm. And I left. And so uh, this book is dedicated to Pacific Lutheran Seminary. Shout out to Ray Pickett, the president, um, because uh, they didn't think I did the work and I just turned it all over to Broadly. And I didn't do it on their time, right? But like I had already put together this stuff. I had already put together this intellectual property and I had been putting it together for like a year. But it can only be taught. And in the, in the book, you know, the book talks about this. You have to have these sort of spiritual, somatic, almost ceremonial container-like events. And the ability to have sacred encounters with the divine in your own home before you can go out and do this revolutionary work. 
Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I hate to break it to you, but a pre-recorded class that's like, you know, asynchronous ain't going to do that, right? An async, how many book clubs have we joined, right? And that's actually a chapter of the book. Right, yeah. Uh, right, a chapter of the book is there ain't no book club for this shit. <laughs> or like, you know, or no, or there's no three-day training for this shit, right? Like it mm-hmm. has to be experiential. Anyway, I'm rambling too much. So that's sort of the experience I went through. It stripped me of everything, man. Yeah. Really. It, it reminds me of this video that I saw that went viral a couple of years ago. And there was a protest happening at like, it was like a either a, a town hall or maybe it, it might have even been in a courtroom. But there was some sort of protest happening. This black activist man goes up front and jumps on one of the tables, right, doing this protest, this very public demonstration. And immediately he had all of these other white activists. They immediately rush around him where, you know, and all the cops, you know, eventually want to, you know, they do their shit or whatever. But there was this protection of all these white activists around this man as he does this public demonstration. And I remember thinking to myself, that is something that white people can't just read a book and do. Right. That is some that is an embodied training that takes practice and takes con- and commitment and maybe at some point a white body will get to a point where its natural reaction is to protect that black protester. But that can't be just learned in a fucking book club, right? And so no. that's what I love about this book is you're really putting this like there is an embodied experience to this that is not uh, maybe necessarily natural to a person that's been racialized as white. And therefore there needs to be more than just reading or thinking about this. There actually has to be an embodied experience that helps a white person get to this point of putting their body on the line for this kind of revolutionary work. No, a hundred percent. And June T-Rex Knightley, who was one of the people that the book is dedicated to, the other two names are two boys who died in my parish. I've never had two boys be killed by the police on my parish before, under which are still questionable circumstances. And uh, June T-Rex Knightley, it's funny you bring that up. Uh, you know, she's a 60-year-old. She was when she was with us. Now she's with the ancestors. Like, before she was murdered by the white supremacists at the Justice for Patrick Kimmons protest that day at the incident in Portland, the name of the park because of trauma brain is escaping me, but it'll come to me in a second. But, you know, she only said two things to me ever. Like, I don't want to pretend like me and me, me and T-Rex were like tight, right? No, I was one of the few black activists on the ground. I unfortunately, next to, I think, Letha and two others, like, well, next to Letha, because Letha was more active than me, and I was like about half as active as Letha. Um, and shout out to Letha and the Justice for Patrick Kimmons crew. I believe we will win, and I believe in y'all. But, you know, like, when you're one of the few people on the ground in a very white setting who's Black and active, everyone wants to talk to you. So I was very protective of my space, very protective of my time very protective of who I engaged with in ideological or political conversations, particularly on days where my life was on the line. Mm -hmm. And people told me, we know Reverend Duncan, we know you've been arrested for marijuana, but we really need you to wear a tactical vest today because we have really, really solid evidence that someone's gonna try and kill you today, right? So these aren't days, right? And, And like, I have to weigh for my first amendment right, do I illegally wear a ballistic vest Right. 
or do I not? So do I mm. risk my life for the higher call or do I or do I risk three, four months in jail and a weird explanation to a judge, which is what I did the whole time because so many of us were being hurt. And so I only interacted with June twice. Let me tell you about June. June was a 60-year-old white woman who looked like if you saw her walking down the street, you'd be like, who's this ineffectual waif of a person? And I mean by like, if you saw them protesting, you'd be like, why is this person out here? Who's this neoliberal? Mm-hmm. One of the most radical people I've ever met. They would leave, oh man, they would leave their chemo treatments to come march. Mm-hmm. And, so, and, and so June only ever said two things to me. Um, one, true story, I was at some like kind of thing where people were trying to be serious and like get together and like, you know, really talk about tactics. But like one of the main leaders who I was just devising because I was like the oldest trans, black trans person on the ground on a regular basis, which was a weird position to be in, you know, had invited me. And I thought it was like a hangout. So I was like smoking a L or some shit. Like, I don't even know. You know what I mean? I was like a year in a trauma, trauma life, you know? And I said something in June. They were like, they were like, huh? And they walked out and I heard them say to someone else, is that the pastor? Right? So that was my one interaction with June. <laughs> But the other one I had was, 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 you know, I always had this challenge question, which was, you know, like, why are you out here? Why are you out here? Just why are you out here? That would be like my one thing. Cause you know, again, time, space, preciousness, trying to stay safe. And uh, I asked June that and June said, without hesitation to put my body in the way of a black body, which is how she died, mm. right? And you can't, you can't teach that. There's no book club for that. Mm-hmm. There's no book club for the guilt that I feel for not getting to know uh, June better and having judgments by the way they looked. And by the time I got to know them and hearing a few cool things out of them, that it was too late. How do I live with that as a leader? Um, and there's no book club that's going to teach you how to handle a group of people after they've had a mass um, casualty event when they've lost a person, but yet they have to go out in March and do it all over again in three weeks because the black mother who the March is for, her son is still not alive and justice has not been rendered and she's going with her father. Years ago, again, you wrote a book called Dear Church uh, where you called, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you sort of in a way called for the church to reform. Uh, yeah. But with everything that's happened in the last four years, uh, you are now calling for revolution of the church. Yeah. Can you talk about that difference between reform and revolution? Because that seems like a really key piece in how we how one should understand dear revolutionaries, especially in contrast to dear church. So how do you understand the difference between reform and revolution? Uh, I think that's a really important difference that yeah. you're making there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Reformers believe, and I was a reformer, I guess, in a lot of ways that the church actually has some useful utility um, in the in modernity. I mean, by the church, I mean the church of the the mainline church in particular. We know that evangelicalism has these really rough edges. I would argue that the whole funny thing about that is there are spaces that are actually doing more progressive stuff in the evangelical church that are progressive in evangelical because of the extremes that they're up against. But that's Mm. just me. You know, I believe, and I say in the book quite clearly in the first chapter, that the day of Jesus Christ and the church is over. The age of that, the age of Christ is over. Mm. 
and I don't say that lightly. And it doesn't matter if the age in which the divine can be most fully experienced is through the Gospels is over ontologically and psychologically because of the political climate in this country. Or it's actually mystically and spiritually over. The effect on the ground is the same. And the effect on the ground is this. I dare any one of your listeners to go anywhere in Florida and talk to a trans teen about Jesus Christ. I dare you to do it in Alabama. Take your ass to Texas and talk to a mother who has an unwanted child in their own body, whether it's alive or not. I don't fuck the debate. It's her body. How about autonomy? Right? And tell them about the story of a Palestinian dissident. And how that person who sacrificed themselves in this popular movement and knows oppression, knows fear, defended the widow, the poor, and the woman above all else, approves it. And that, well, that's just them, or that's the other side, or the beauty of the Christian church is that there's all this plurality of belief. How is that beautiful? What Mm. looks beautiful on the ground lately? And so it's a dead construct. And, and Christ himself would say that. He, he was declaring it dead practically halfway through his ministry. If we, could, if we had but ears to listen, or if we had just but hearts to perceive, I don't want to be completely ableist. Mm. But, but, you know, my, my, my thing is, is that, that that's over. So this idea of like, we're going to get, Elizabeth Eaton of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, the presiding bishop of that denomination, to ever do anything radical is bullshit. And it's not because of Elizabeth. It's the position itself. Mm. It is the position itself. It is the, it's the ontological construct of Christianity. It is too wrapped up in the project of, of colonity. It is too wrapped up in the project of capitalism. And it has become fatally unretrievable ontologically politically economically i mean i love the work you guys do at your seminary i actually yo shout out to united by the way i know lots of students there great stuff going on right and i love the fact when united's one of the few schools that's taking in the idea of the fullness right the fullness of the fact that like this is probably the last generation of paid professional clergy ever Mm. At least full time, baby. Ain't nobody going after the shit that we're about to go through over the next fifteen years. It's going. We're going to go back to how it was in nineteen ten. A lot of times, people don't have like historical framing, right? And the way that history tells on itself and inverts itself. So the average church attendance, nineteen ten, World War One, fifteen percent of the country, maybe seventeen, ten percent. Some people say. You know, 7% were just lying. And then post-World War II, it balloons to 50, 60%. And we have these institutions that have become addicted, addicted to their endowments and to their, their cash cows, their positions. At the greatest time of human need, I've seen, at a salvation moment in history, we were too busy arguing about the online efficacy of communion. Mm. <laughs> and that just tells you who we are, who we are. 
it's bereft of hope, I think. Yeah. I want to dive into theology because I think you bring up this really great point earlier about this is all also a theological crisis. Right. You later on in the book talk about the crucifixion of Jesus and you bring up this really important question. Did he have to die? And for several years, I've been influenced by folks like Dolores Williams, where she questions, is Jesus' death even salvific? Like, does that actually, is that the event in his life that actually saved uh, humanity or the world? And so I'm curious, like, perhaps salvation comes not by Jesus's death, but some other part of of his life. And certainly Dolores Dolores Williams talks about the ministerial vision of his life is what saves. Um, And I'm not sure whether, you know, where you diverge with her or not, but at the end of the day, you're bringing up this very important question. Did he have to die? And I also think that it's important maybe the death is not what actually saves. Uh, and so I'm just really curious about your thoughts about this this conception around his death and what that means for salvation. Does it save? Did he have to? Anyway, I'm curious about those thoughts because it's something that I've thought about. Uh, I've gotten in a lot of trouble online about questioning uh, Jesus's death being salvific. So anyway, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. And maybe uh, maybe you can uh, maybe you can take some of the heat that I've gotten on Twitter from it. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So my stuff, a lot of my premises, and I think in the book I, I, I make note of it. You know, it's 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 really what Cone talked about. You know, at the end of the cross and the lynching tree, Cone says, like, you know, he compares it just like I do to, to Emmett Till, right? And, and, and when you look at the lynching, and, and, and that's what happens to Christ. I mean, I don't know why we get so ahistorical, all right? Let's look at what Rome did. Rome did public humiliation, mm-hmm. right, and lynching. The, the, the scene where they're casting lots for his clothes, that's a sexual assault. Imagine if a bunch of cops stripped you naked, laughed at you, and whipped you in front of everyone. Right? And then gambled for your clothes. Mm. So, so this is a lynching. This is, this is, if you look at the history of lynching, and particularly in America, and look at the actions that happened to Jesus Christ, this is the state in a conspiracy with people like us. Everyone wants to be like, oh, you can't say it's clergy because I, you know, like I, I understand that there are some supersessionists and completely ahistorical uh, fucking uh, uh, anti-Semitic takes on like what it means that clergy are involved in this story. I say clergy. I don't say rabbis. I don't say teachers because like it's clergy. It's people like us. It's the people who are in charge. And I'll, I'll you know, I'll get to that in a second because there's a whole you know, I'm a historian now. That that shit's really easy to explain. It doesn't mm. need like all these mystical fucking ex- explanations. So the real question, because I'm a narrative theologian, and I want to know what the story is trying to tell us about the universe and the world, and what the storytellers thought was important, mm. and in particular in the synoptics, what we see around the death of Christ is we see lots of opportunity for humanity to step in. And we, you know, there's a couple ways you could frame the story. And I don't want to get into how the fact that this is a dude who just did a political, you know, street theater, which is Palm Sunday, mocking the emperor who was coming in on the other side of Jerusalem, all that shit you're going to get, you know, like your 101 class. And, you know, you're like, whoa, right? Right. We know that he was doing street theater. We know that, like, 
it's the most important day for the temple. So when he throws all that money everywhere, he just robbed the state bank for 80% of its surplus and gave it away to the poor. And now he's standing with 5,000 people at his back. And the, and the teachers are like, would you tear this building down? That's why they asked the question. Because they thought an army had come to take their money and tear the building down and destroy the Holy of Holies. And that's where they're guarding. They're mm-hmm. guarding the holiest place in Israel. So, you know, that, you know, Jesus looks like Portland. Jesus looks like Memphis. Jesus looks like the protesters at Cop City. They took over a state-run place, stole all the money, destroyed a bunch of shit, chased the uh, law-abiding business owners out of the fucking way on principle and morals. And when we get to the climax of the scene, they ask Jesus, are you going to tear the whole shit down? And he says, no, man, it'll come back in three days anyway. (laughs) Right? He gives him his whole teaching. All that's about us. It's the ways that we combine money with faith. It's the way that we keep people in and out and the purity tests. Because the only reason the money changers are there is because certain poor people who couldn't afford certain uh, purification rites and certain rituals at that particular very short fucking period of temple history. You racist motherfuckers listening. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Mm-hmm. But at that time, they they would do that. Lots of people do that kind of stuff. It's very common, and I and so yes, I think that 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 when we look at the story of Christ, it's a story of who we are. Who we are is when love comes down to be with us. We rip it to shreds. We'll lynch it. Love infuriates us when we see it. When you know it's of God, it fucking drives you crazy, and you have no rational reason. You know it because it challenges something deep down inside you and there's a lesson in it and you have to face it, right? And 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 a lot of modern day Christianity is navel-gazing bullshit of like, well, grace has saved me, so I guess I'll just let the world fucking burn, right? And I, I, it's just navel-gazing bullshit. My relationship with God, my relationship with Christ, my theology, right? Um, and none of that, Jesus Christ spoke like a rabbi because he was a fucking rabbi. Rabbis hardly ever speak in anything but weeds, us, the community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very different kind of framework. And so my whole point is that's what it is. Jesus did not have to die. I think I, I'm not even sure there's this is what I know about salvation. There seems to be some sort of outside force that steps into human history for the express purpose of salvation. But that is experienced throughout history and cultures as collective liberation. Mm. So was there a salvation moment in the entire story? And I think it's the entirety of Christ's story, even the parts we'll never see and we never know. Mm. I think it's all those events that were the saving events, mm-hmm. right? It's, I think it's the totality of, that, of, of, of Christ's life. And what, how that influence spread because there was a collective liberation. We see it in Acts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, in, in Acts, people, there's no more money. There's no more class. There's no more property. Right? And the people will hold back. That's the one time Peter curses them and makes them fucking die in front of everyone. Which I think, that's like my favorite Peter. Peter who just gives out death curses. He's like, oh, you're still a capitalist? You die. That's my Peter. 
and 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 the salvation is the power he showed us that we had access to mm. he raised the dead not because he's the only one who can do it because you can he healed people why because you can he faced the demonic why because you can and remember when the 72 come back they come back and he's like yo what the fuck did you come back for he's like if you were doing it right you can make whole continents move that reminds me of that little section that you have about us doing greater things than Jesus. Because he says that that's what's going to happen. We're going to do greater things. Where's the promise? Where's the promises? Yeah. And no one wants to live into them. Do you know why? Because they're not fucking profitable. They don't mm. make for good parishioners. And they don't fill the coffers. That's just the truth, man. If I tell you that you have the power to do communion at home, to bury your own dead, and not only that, you could do miracles. Why? Because your own God said so. Well, that's not the same as, you know, well, for the sake of good order, we need to make sure that all these kids from these camps that we've been brainwashing since they were 12, who didn't really quite make it as actors or in bands, now become pastors. Because, I mean, that was like 30% of the people I went to school with. It was like just good kids with decent morals who knew how to stand in front of people and tell a story. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. You have this section in the book where you talk about diversity. You essentially have like a critique of diversity and how it's used in American culture. Uh, You know, a lot of neoliberal institutions, they believe that diversity is like a means towards liberation rather than the outcome of when liberation actually happens. And I'm really interested in your thoughts around that because, you know, a lot of these neoliberal institutions think, all right, if we just put a black woman up front, boom, we're good. It's going to be great. We're great. And that's just like not how that works. And so I'm really curious around your thoughts around like how diversity is used in these like neoliberal spaces and and how we really should be thinking about diversity. A lot of this goes to people like me. We're the problem. You asked about reform. It's the thought leader industrial complex. It's academics. It's people who sell books. You know what happens every three, four years? Mason, some crazy fucking shit to some oppressed people. You know what the church does and a bunch of other people? They get together and they talk to you about reform and revolution and they have books and they have conferences and they have shit you can pay for and shit you can go to. You know what never fucking happens? Reform or revolution, bud. (laughs) It's the thought leader industrial complex. Why? Because it is designed. It is designed to not help, right? 
the movement, but to actually take away from it. Nothing I've ever said from the stage of a church or written in a book is not something that some activist on the ground couldn't say to you right now if you would just get off your ass and get out your house. Mm. There's not one original thought there. I mean, some stuff, the way I tie things together, and I like to think I have a a, a bit of a, a flourish with words. But the truth is, man, it's just like good, good faith-based organizing. And and it and it, and it just buys into the fucking premise that you are smart, that you have the power to change your world, and that you don't need to listen to people like me at conferences. You know what I mean? And then when you do come to me, you come to me because I'm a subject matter expert, and you know straight up that it's a almost capitalist exchange. And the thought leader industrial complex will constantly do this. They will throw IDS seminars at you. Um, we tell them to pay reparations on the stolen land they're on, and they just make a dean of decolonization. You know what I'm saying? Like, and then they'll 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 use diversity, and diversity is a tactic. Diver- and and you can see it. I'll talk about it. You know, right across the uh, city from y'all is like Luther. You know, that's a school that's really struggled with how do we right welcome queer people while still remaining this sort of last bastion i would i would argue wartburg certainly much more in my opinion than you know of like you know lutheran core alc lca like predecessor body kind of ethics right Mm -hmm. that has been you know sort of amalgamated into the elca and 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 to be honest with you some of those some of those ethics and ecclesiologies and, and the way that church functions are probably the only thing that's kept the ELCA limping along this long, right? And so they are worthy. I think there is a worthiness to understanding the Lutheran confessions. Um, most people, I don't think even read them half the time when they become pastors. They go to the class and that's the last time they pick them up. Mm. Um, I think there's a need to understand your own church's constitution, its ecclesiology, and to understand its liturgy before you just decide to do whatever the fuck you want. Right. I'm I'm much more I'm much more pedagogically and theologically, I would consider, you know, people would consider me conservative if they heard me in fucking classes and such my real feelings about things. Right. But. When you pit that up against that, they want to have more diversity, so they open it up to African students. Right. Mm. And then you have a lot of African students who aren't really tuned into what's happening here with white supremacy within the empire, don't understand the subtle politics and the ways, right? And 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 with very few black students, very few indigenous students, and then, you know, all of a sudden queer students don't have anyone to be in solidarity with, right? Hmm. And this is the problem, and this isn't Luther's fault. This is the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America's fault because they allow five different positions around queer people ranging from i think they're gonna burn in hell and i don't care if they hang from a tree to it's cool if they're pastors and that's about as far as they got right and so you know people want to get mad at these institutions but theologically right right theologically you 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 have an institution that's like we want to be more diverse right black people bipoc people and particularly ones who are thinking about faith who would come to an institution like this, I would say easily 35 to 40% are queer, LGBTQIA or affirming. So they're already saying, you know what I mean? So they got to deal with that, right? They got to deal with intersectionality and they're trying to push, 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 right? To get people in. 
But a lot of this shit is by design. There's a reason why African students who aren't hip to the everyday politics are the ones who get the most scholarships over there because it's easier to deal with after Philando Castile. Mm. Stanky's not a goddamn fool. And there's a lot of other people over there who understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. That the denomination's not going to give them ontological support. It barely gives them financial support. So why would the president of Luther take this huge stand for queer people, no matter what they personally believe, right, where they shut down like most of their international students who have deep theological reasons? And, you know, why should she explain to every white student that black uh, students aren't a monolith and that we're not all queer affirming? There's a reason you hear from my ass a lot and not a lot of other people, Mm. right? Like, like, you know, like all this kind of stuff. And really all it is, is is a tactic to take away from the fact that if they just change simple policy, simple economic, and uh, simple, I would say, moral frameworks, everything would be fine. Mm. Quite simply, if Luther would just say, hey, this is stolen land, we know what tribe or what indigenous uh, peoples or, 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 or what group this, this land belonged to originally. So we're gonna give 10% to our student, to, to, to them of all the money we make. And we're gonna give another 10% for black Americans who are descended from slaves who never got their 40 acres in a mule, right? And yes, we're queer affirming, but that means that like, you know, uh, you're going to experience resistance from being a queer person in the world, just like you do. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's going to be just like how it is in the world for you. Mm-hmm. Right. And instead of saying like, we can't seem to get through the RIC process or, you know, some sort of reconcile, or we can't seem to reach consensus or we're not sure theological, that's all bullshit. Right. No, the truth is, is that if you're studying to get a MDiv and you think, if you think it's hectic at your school, Way do they put you up to look for a church? Child, please. Right? So, I mean, you, you know, like, part of it is you have a right not to experience that. And that gives you the right not to go to that school. Mm-hmm. Right? But you also, they have a right to say that, like, well, this is the mixed bag you're going to be handed with mainline Christianity anyway. Right. Which is, I think, their position. They're like, this is what the denomination looks like. A bunch of people don't fucking agree in the same room. And yeah, I don't. I, I'm not defending their position. I'm just fucking, you know, I'm, 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 I'm problematizing it for. Right. Them. Right. It's, this is the problem. This is why this shit won't work. This is why diversity doesn't work. All it does is pit people like me in high pressure situations, makes us tokens. Why the fuck was I? in my third month in seminary on a national broadcast two months after Charleston, if not anything but to wipe up the blood of Dylan Root. That's mm-hmm. how everyone got to know me in my denomination. How is, how is that helping me? You're a recruiter at a seminary. Would you let that happen to me? Of course you wouldn't, Mason, because you care for me. You would say, hey, new person in this denomination, you don't want to be the token anything. And in fact, since you're new around here, you should probably shut your mouth. You're probably not going to make any friends on any side. And by the way, how could I say no to the presiding bishop asking me, someone who was formerly incarcerated to be on a podcast, um, you know, a broadcast with a former cop or a current cop and a, and a, and a black judge? If that was the cop and that was the judge, then, you know, what was I? I was the fucking token crook. That's how I got introduced to everyone. 
And no one saw that as wrong. No one in that fucking room saw that as wrong except for me. Except I had a $150,000 scholarship on the line, Mason. Right? Mm-hmm. If I didn't graduate, I had to pay all that back. And everyone in that room could say, oh, you could have said no at any time. Yeah, I'm sure my career would have went exactly the same if I would have said no. That's a diversity situation. That's right? exactly That's like- how it is. Sort of along those lines, uh, in one of the last chapters, you bring up this point that I guess I've never really thought of before. And I'm like, this is incredible. This might be my favorite insight that you 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 uh, bring out in the book. But in one of the last chapters, you talk about loving your neighbors and how if we actually and literally do love our neighbors, the police would be abolished. So my first question is, first, how does our lack of loving our actual neighbors contribute to the creation of policing? And then the second question is, how then on the flip side, how can loving our neighbors actually contribute to abolishing the police? So I'm, I'm curious yeah. on like both sides, like how does actually not loving our neighbors contribute to us uh, getting to the point where we create policing? And then on the flip side, how can we do the opposite of that? Yeah, I think, you know, part of this has roots in something I think you'll love. Part of this has roots almost like your love of switchfoot, my man. I just loved <laughs> the way that evangelical uh, church planters, and that's what they were, they were as gross as that sounds right and the whole you know uh mission start plantation complex right and the whole like missionary fucking plantation complex but you know one thing you could say about evangelicals there's so much like like the mainline may think they have the theology which i would argue sometimes they don't Mm -hmm. you can't think your way you can't think your way into heaven but but the other part is is that you know the evangelicals they got the sociology down and so a lot of this stuff is like, I really love the shit that John Wimber and the fucking Vineyard did. And mm. like, like early shit that they did. And it really is like that early on, like art of neighboring. I mean, we know some of these tactics, but, but, but here's my argument around that. The police only exist because of this reason. And it's because you don't want to love your neighbor. It's because you literally don't want to take the most basic commandment of the so-called god Mm. that you're willing to do all this you're willing to kill each other over right and here's and here's why you call the police because there's a disturbance down the street you don't want to know why that kid stands out front every day you don't want to know if the traffic is really drugs or not you don't want to know why your neighbor is beating on the femme across the way you don't want to know why the person across the street seems to be selling all their stuff out front. You don't want to get to know their name. You don't want to get to know their story. You don't want to get involved. What's easier for you as a white person in this country and what you've been conditioned to do, even though you sit in church and hear this all the time, is that you call your personal armed concierge service. Mm. And, And this is bad for the cops too. Because these guys are caught in the same system. This isn't an anti-cop thing. Because, like, if you're, like, one of those people who's like, well, I don't think all cops are bastards. Okay, well, here's the thing then. So you're going to send a guy who's not been trained in socioeconomic anything. So no social work skills whatsoever. No way to refer to anyone. Just an out-of-date list that they hand someone. Someone who doesn't, isn't trained in de-escalation. Someone who can't recognize mental health crisis. Someone who doesn't know the difference between... Uh, a psychotic break, uh, autism, right? 
right? Because like that's like I mean that killed a kid in Colorado, man. Mm-hmm. Like you know what I mean? Like like, and you're gonna send a person who most likely a few hours ago left a traumatic event, and they get no care, they get no follow up, they get no one talking about them, they get no one helping them, right? And they're gonna show up with a gun to a situation. You know, basically you're calling a hammer. To a situation where everything's going to look like a fucking nail to them. Because you're too lazy, spiritually lazy, to knock on the door somatically and get to know someone who doesn't look like you. And say, hey, my name is Lenny and I just like wanted to knock on the door. I'm your neighbor. Um, I made like some cookies or like whatever it is, right? Or like I'm having a barbecue or if you ever need anything or if you ever want to borrow anything you see me on the lawn just say hi to me like that kind of stuff is what saved us in portland because Mm. when when things fell apart we all knew each other right and so yes the police only exist because we don't want to get to know community and we believe this lie that we have the right to to decide the mores of another community 300 miles away see that's the thing man if we all got together and all got to know each other and all got to know the problems of each other and then started to care for each other the best we could, we wouldn't solve everything, but we would solve most of the problems and the police would hardly ever have to be called. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there would be extreme situations, but there were situations in Portland, you know, the average, it took two hours for the average 911 call in the middle of the uprisings. And so, you know, people in the community were like, fuck you protesters. Like now you get to answer calls. And they called us for stuff. My daughter called because someone stole her van. And we got our van back safely, got one person connected to treatment, and gave the other one the 100 bucks between us that they wanted to go get high that they probably would have got for everything they got out of the van. Not one shot was fired. Not one person was hurt. Mm. Legal, legal, legal gun owners were there armed. Right? But the rest of us, they weren't in sight. Nobody was holding weapons against them. Right. And you probably got to know those people. Yeah. And, and, and we got the van back. We've actually got it back twice now before they sold it. But you know what I'm saying? Like, like, like that, that's the stuff we were seeing. We were seeing like, oh, oh, we figured out who's the person stealing from your, whose porch pirating you. We know where their encampment is. We'll go talk to them and see if we can like help them out with some cash or see if we can get them some work. And sometimes that didn't work. But they at least knew they couldn't go back to that place. The jig, you know, what I mean? like the like the jig was up at that house, right? And they moved on. But you know, like and 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 no one, no one ever. I mean, there were some hairy situations, right? But 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 when you put yourself in those situations that police are supposed to be in, right? And you step forward, and and this is just me, right? I'm one of those people. When I hear gunshots, I run towards them because I want to help. I see a car accident, I run towards it. Most people run away or they're in shock or they freeze. And when you put yourself in those situations, though, you you realize a couple of things. Everyone's kind of guessing. And there's some basic training you can get that I suggest in the book, Stop the Bleed, some basic street medic training. But man, like uh, being, you know, it's just really this call to like what Mr. Rogers said, who I think is the best example of a minister ever, Mm. a Presbyterian minister and my favorite, you know, and that's look for the helpers, man. You know, I just want to be one of the helpers, but there's this myth that we're safety and that it's okay that indigenous people are gone, but they're not right. 
or that they're on these reservations that they're oppressed. And it's okay that black people gave us labor and we never paid them because we've given you this utopia with safety. But if you've ever driven across this country, that's insane. Mm. Uh, if every if every man, woman, and child was given one acre of land in this country, it wouldn't even fill half of South Dakota. You can't cover that much land with a million standing troops driving in Humvees every day. The illusion of safety and why they're so concerned, why they're trying to save the idea of the police officer right now is because if we realize that we don't need them to keep us safe, we don't really need them because they don't really provide health care because we've put together free clinics and shit like that. You know, black communities have done that for years. We just recently did it. We could do it again. Like, you know what I'm saying? In Portland and in other places where I work with people, like, like when we realize how little we need them, well, then the whole thing starts to fall apart for them. Mm -hmm. And that's really why they're so conciliatory this time. That's why, guys, this one's heinous. A, it's a bunch of black people, so that's easy for them to sell to other people. B, um, it, it really fucks with the narrative, so it gives conservatives something to talk about, right? And, and, and C, by being really conciliatory, you don't realize that in every major city and in every suburb and in most rural towns, police forces are down to less than 40%, and there's signs everywhere begging you to join them. Drive around, kids. Take a look. That doesn't sound like a state that's in a powerful position that's ready to be conciliatory because they finally saw a light. That sounds like a state that got their ass kicked in 2020. That sounds like a state that learned its lesson and they learned it on the bodies of my comrades. Mm -hmm. But because of the work we did in 2020, they're scared to death right now. Mm -hmm. Their police forces are decimated. Their city councils are wore out. Politicians don't want to get involved. I think the secret is right now, Mason, if we really wanted to, we could just take it all. Second to last question, Lenny. The tagline of my podcast is, is exploring, inspiring, and liberating theology. How do you hope Dear Revolutionaries inspires and liberates the people who read it? I hope that it helps you to become the high priest, the high priestess, or the sovereign, the high sovereign in your own life, in your mm. own uh, church. I hope that church becomes your home. I hope that altar becomes your patterns and habits. Um, and I hope that you realize that I repent of being in your way to your power, um, that I was complicit and I take no pride in coming clean. Love it. That's a beautiful word. That'll preach. <laughs> That'll preach. That'll preach. Uh, Lenny, last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Oh, man, that's a, such a weird question because I'm so terrible at keeping up on that. I mean, best to find me on the socials, uh, Lenny A. Duncan everywhere, um, or Revo Lenny A. Duncan is my page on, on, on Facebook. I got to be honest with you, man. I wrote two books very quickly. I have another one coming out next oh, January. Shit. We'll talk about another time. But it's about hip hop and poetry. Beautiful. But but I did that because I'm kind of done with public leadership. I I think it's a time for us to withdraw and really like, you know, I've spent three years studying uh, Ifa, which is the tradition, the earth based practice. You know, my ancestors and and my family and like all that. I don't think that's the answer. I don't think any way is the answer. But what I'm saying is is like. I've just been really leaning into withdrawing small groups of powerful people that I trust and us creating ontologies and uh, 
and worlds and, and, and communities ourselves. And so I don't know how much more of the public stuff I'll be doing or how much I want people to find me anymore. You can still find me at LennyDuncan.com, but I don't even know how much longer that'll be up. I got to be honest with you. The whole capitalist machine behind this stuff makes me reticent mm. to continue to engage. That's definitely fair. Well, where can people get the book and where would you like people to get the book? Because that as much as as much as you might not be as uh, active on those other social media stuff, I think you probably still want people to read the book. Yeah, absolutely. I do. You know, you can check it out at Broadleaf, uh, uh, Broadleaf Books. Their website has a whole page with my stuff. It's on every major real retailer has it uh, typically Target typically uh, indie books, typically Amazon, typically Barnes and Noble will buy a couple hundred of my books. So you can find them there. You can pre-order it anywhere. Uh, you can buy uh, books right now. And uh, yeah. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter for like, I don't know, I'm trying to build my OnlyFans base. So hit me up. I'm kidding. Let's do it. Well, not half kidding, half kidding. <laughs> PhDs are expensive, man. PhDs are expensive. Don't be surprised I, if next I, book I'm like, I buy totally my content at the end. <laughs> uh, Lenny, it's a, always a treat to chat with you. I think Dear Revolutionaries is your best book that I've read so far. I think it's great. Uh, I'm really Thank grateful you. for you writing it. It's just really unbelievable insights in there that I'm going to be taking away. Um, this is just really, really wonderful. So thanks again. And again, we need to find time to uh, hang out in person sometime. Yeah, come come to the Bay Area, man. It's like it's like it's so weird now it's like oakland's a weird suburb and san francisco's like you ever watch gotham on fox <laughs> it's like that now <laughs> it is i swear to god we got super villains and fucking vigilantes out there it's fucking wild well i think we know which one you are you're uh probably both villain and vig vigilante <laughs> oh i hope i you know we need good villains black people need good villains you know, right. I, I, I hope I grow up to be the ELCA supervillain. That would be <laughs> great. It. You know, love and it. like, you know, any of that bullshit. <laughs> Lenny, it's a treat to chat with you. Thanks again. Thank you. If you would like to connect with Lenny and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. <laughs>